This podcast is brought to you by Sarah Taylor, the author of a new book entitled Filters Shift, How Effective People See the World. Please join Sarah and Greg as they discuss her new book on podcast number 627. In the interview, they explore how each and every one of us has created filters and how these filters shape the way we see the world and how we interact with others. The effects of our unconscious behaviors can create tremendous challenges in our lives at work and at home. Learn how to retain your brain and become aware of your own biases and differences to allow for improved effectiveness. Please take a moment to listen to podcast number 627 with author Sarah Taylor about her new book, Filter Shift, How Effective People See the World. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyce and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners, Ken, who come back from around the world and have been listening to these podcasts for years and years. have been on the air over 10 years um, with an excess of uh, 640-plus podcasts uh, with thought leaders and authors like yourself. And I don't think this current guest probably needs too much introduction, although it's just a pleasure to have him on the show. It's Ken Wilbur joining us from Denver. Ken, how are you doing today? Well, just fine, Greg. Uh, good to be with you, friend. Well, it's good to be have you on the show. This is my first interview with you ever out of all those interviews, so it's great to get you on the show and an opportunity to talk to you about your new book here called The Religion of Tomorrow, A Vision for the Future of the Great Traditions, and it says more inclusive, more comprehensive, and more complete, and I will say that. It's about 800 pages in total. So if you guys are going to get this book, which I'm going to recommend everybody go do, uh, Ken is the founder of the Integral Institute and co-founder of Integral Life. He is an internationally acknowledged leader and a preeminent scholar of the integral stages of human development. He's the author of more than 20 books, including Integral Meditation, A Theory of Everything, Integral Spirituality, No Boundary, Grace and Grit, and Sex, Ecology, and Spirituality. This is a Shambhala publication book. And again, for my readers, um, I actually saw that it's listed at less on Amazon than actually anywhere. So if you're gonna go get it, uh, go up to Amazon today and purchase it. I don't know, 19 bucks. So Ken, I watched the videos of Tomorrow's Spirituality and you open the video with a statement about the press, not knowing what to do with the questions uh, based around spirituality, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you used two uh, examples in your statement there, but you say that there's two types of religion. There's the esoteric and the exoteric. Um, what are the differences, and how do you see the evolution of these two types of religions as we move forward? In other words, what is this religion of tomorrow uh, going to look like for all the listeners that are out there listening? Well, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you think about religion in general, and it's really sort of the original self-improvement program, um, particularly if you think about something like Buddhism or Vedanta or even Christian mysticism and Kabbalah. People would go to those as a way to, to, to improve their lot, to wake up, to achieve enlightenment, to have some sort of uh, uh, extraordinary uh, peak experience uh, to gain a great liberation. 
and um, the the core of religions that focused on that aspect of spirituality, namely a waking up or an enlightenment or direct self-transforming experience, those are generally known as the esoteric uh, aspects. These these are the, often referred to as the inner teachings. They were um, generally not given to the public. Uh, they were withheld for um, more advanced students and um, individuals that, that had uh, sort of more gifted in these areas. And then the exoteric or the general sort of myths and stories that, that the typical person would be told. Um, so in Christianity, an exoteric version is you have to believe everything in the Bible is the literal word of God, and you have to believe Jesus Christ is the sole biological son of the one and only true um, God, and so on. But the esoteric core of Christianity was, as St. Paul said, let this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. So it, it was also it was a waking up to this oneness, to this divine uh, unity, divine union, divine oneness. Um, that, that was the esoteric core of Christianity as well. But even and if you think you, about you, it... Would you yeah? put Buddhism in that uh, arena? Uh, would you put the Kabbalah in that arena? What are, what are the, my wife is the head of a thing called Builders of the Atenum, which Paul Foster Case started many years ago. What are you, what are you going to throw in that esoteric area versus these more traditional religions which are very dogmatic, which cause more division. Um, right. I'm not saying intentionally they cause that division, but they cause that division because of the dividing line and the very strong beliefs that the people in them hold. Well, that's right. I mean, most of the fundamentalist exoteric forms of religion do, whether they mean it or not, they do end up having a very divisive effect because mm -hmm. all of them believe essentially that that their path is the one and only true path mm -hmm. um i mean with krishna for example it states if you do not believe in krishna you cannot achieve liberation the same with fundamentalist christianity if you do not accept jesus christ as your personal savior i'm sorry but you're going to hell and i don't want you to but unfortunately god does and so that's just too bad and notoriously, though, the, the esoteric traditions, the more mystical traditions, mystics of, of the different traditions um, usually get along quite well. They understand each other well. They see that they're both, that they're each dealing with a direct experience of an ultimate reality. And they recognize that that ultimate reality is as fully present in, in the other religion as it is in their own religion. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, those are those are quite different usually. Yeah, and you know, you talked about the conveyor belt theory of religion, which I thought was really interesting, especially right. how religion is the only element that we can explain these historic shifts in human consciousness. Now, I've followed you for years, your lines, your levels, um, but you you talked about in there this pre-rational form to the rational form to the trans-rational form. Um, right. Explain this conveyor belt kind of theory to allow our listeners to understand the evolution of consciousness, number one, but also how you see the religion of tomorrow 
taking shape because obviously we've got to get to this transrational uh, kind of form that you're talking about. Right, exactly. Well, um, one of the things that has has just recently been understood and that something is, was not understood when the great traditions were first laid down. As a matter of fact, there's still not a single great spiritual tradition today that has this understanding. But the understanding is that there's fundamentally a difference between what we call waking up and what we call growing up. So waking up is indeed this esoteric experience, this direct immediate experience of a, a divine unity, divine oneness, an enlightened state, an awakened state. And these esoteric traditions uh, we find in Buddhism, we find in Vedanta Hinduism, um, we find, uh, of course, in uh, um, Western theistic traditions, in Judaism, we find it in Kabbalah and Hasidim. In Christianity, we find it in several of the Christian mystical uh, branches. In Islam, we find it in Sufism. And there's, these all had a, uh, were greatly impacted by the Neoplatonic tradition. So we find these esoteric traditions around the world and going back several thousand years. And they were all concerned with waking up. Now, what we've discovered, and, and that waking up experience goes back, some say, as early as 50,000 years ago with, with, the, with the earliest shamans and their uh, mystical voyages. But something that was discovered only about 100 years ago, which means that it was much too recent a discovery to be in any of the world's religions, is that human beings... Um, well, we could say, for example, is a six-month-old child capable of having a waking-up experience? Probably not. We say, well, three years old? Yeah, probably not. In other words, human beings grow and develop. They undergo developmental processes. So we have about a dozen multiple intelligences. We have cognitive intelligence, moral intelligence, spiritual intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, aesthetic intelligence, and so on. And what recent research has found is that all of those intelligences go through around six to eight major stages of development, the major levels of development. And each of these levels looks at the world in a dramatically different way. And so one of the ways that, and by the way, these stages of development are, they're sort of like grammar. Um, everybody that grows up in a particular language speaking culture ends up speaking that language quite correctly. They put subject and verb together correctly. They use adjectives and adverbs correctly and so on. In other words, they follow the rules of grammar of, of, of their language. But if you ask any of them to write down what those rules are, pretty much nobody can do it. Now, most people don't even know they're following extensive rules of grammar when they speak. But those rules of grammar determine how they put words together, how they actually construct, and therefore experience their ongoing day-to-day -day, um, experiences. Well, these stages of development, these six to eight major stages of development that all of our multiple intelligences go through, those are like grammar. There's something that you can't see them by looking within. And that's why they were only discovered about 100 years ago. 
but it was a profound discovery because it really does show how dramatically different individuals look at the world at these different stages. And those stages are what we call growing up. And it turns out that you will interpret your waking up experience according to the stage of growing up that you're at. And that changes everything. <clears throat> because we can give, uh, I'll give a very simplified, very quick version of these stages of growing up by using the model that Carol Gilligan presented for women's moral growth. She presented four major stages, and these are a simplified version of those six to eight stages. But they're simple and straightforward, and they get the point across fairly uh, easily. Her first stage she called selfish. The woman cares only for herself. And um, we also call that egocentric. Then the second stage, if the woman grows and develops, she'll move into the second stage that Gilligan called care. Because the woman stops being selfish and she extends care to a, a group of individuals. It could be her clan or her tribe or her family or even her nation. And we call that ethnocentric because you're now caring for an entire group. It's still a very us versus them. And by the way, most of the great religions were at that ethnocentric stage in their own development when they first uh, uh, arose, which is why they very much have a us versus them mentality. We have the one correct way. Everybody else is going to hell. <clears throat> the third stage Gilligan called not care, but universal care. Because now the woman extends moral concern and care for all humans, not just a special group, but for everybody. And she tries to treat everybody fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. That's a very profound move, and we call that the move from ethnocentric to world-centric. And so it, one of the things that the great religions have to do is move from their own ethnocentric stage to a world-centric stage. And by the way, about 60% of them have not. About 60% of them are still at an ethnocentric stage mm -hmm. where they fundamentally believe that they have the one and only true way. And um, over 95% of the terrorist acts of the last 50 years have been committed by ethnocentric religious believers showing exactly what, what, the, what the core of that type of belief is. Now, Ken, and, if the millions of followers of those types of religions have to elevate their consciousness and the leaders of those religions themselves, how do you actually see something like this occurring? Because, you know, you, this, this is actually affecting our world peace today as we know it and has for millennials. Um, Horribly. So, so what is it that you would see merging, transpiring, evolving uh, in the consciousness of these individuals, both the leaders of those 60% of those religions, plus the followers of those 60% of those religions? And, and I'm not going to say when we might see that. Hell, that could be thousands of years. But, uh, well, <laughs> you know. It, that's exactly what the conveyor belt is about. Mm -hmm. 
also, and just to very quickly, the, the fourth stage that Gilligan gave beyond world-centric, she called integrated. And that's simply a stage that was aware of all the previous stages and took all of them into account. And so what we want, of course, is for religions to be at a world-centric or integrated, we call integral, stage of development. Now, notice that the Catholic Church at Vatican II, for the first time in its 2,000-year history, right. it actually stated, paraphrasing, more or less a direct quote, a comparable religious salvation to the Catholic can be had in other religions. Hmm. Now, that's something the Crusades would never have agreed with. But yeah. by the time the Catholic Church had, had continued growing and evolving and reached a world-centric stage, it made that statement. Now, unfortunately, the next two popes did everything they could to, to deny that. But you can see the point. So what a conveyor belt does is it points out that not only are these stages, stages that, that humanity has gone through on the whole during their overall historical growth and development, there are stages that every individual born today goes through as well. I see. And so that's why, of course, uh, Carol Gilligan gives these stages for stages of, of people that are alive today. And that's what the conveyor belt is. Everybody's born at square one. Everybody starts out at selfish, at egocentric. And then they can grow to ethnocentric, and then if they keep growing, they can grow to world-centric, and if they keep growing, they can grow to integral. These stages, again, are not ones that you can see by looking within. So it's not obvious to people if they're at an ethnocentric stage, and that means they think that their own race is superior, their own uh, sex is superior, their own belief system is superior, their religion is superior, their nation is superior, whatever their group is that they think is the absolute one and only great group in the world. They don't have something that tells them, oh, by the way, you're having a, a, an ethnocentric thought now. And, you know, and nor they, if they have an egocentric thought, it, it also doesn't say, oh, this is an egocentric thought. And if they have a world-centric thought, it doesn't say, oh, this is a world-centric thought. But if you have a, a state experience of waking up, you know it. If you have right. a, a, a feeling of being one with the entire world in love and bliss, you know it. There's no question about it. That's why human beings have known about waking up states for thousands of years. Now, question because you, for you can't see these structures by looking within. We don't know about them. Right. How, in your estimation, and I know this is a deep question, and I, I don't want to get off topic and go to your other book, but I just have to ask this question. You know, yeah. we've got an egocentric president, right? We went from yeah. somebody who was so inclusive to somebody who is so divisive. Um, right. Why at this stage in the evolution of consciousness of the world, of the globe, of society, did this occur in your estimation? I mean, do you, I don't want to go deep into the other book. I want to stay on this one, but boy, this is just a, such a compelling question. I'm sure my listeners would want to know, and then we can talk about the, the truth of Trump um, it, when, we, when we do another interview with you. Um, it, it's pretty straightforward, actually, and not very many people understood this because, again, very, very few people understand these stages of growing up, even though the evidence for them is overwhelming. I mean, we have data in over 40 different cultures 
and, and, and there are no exceptions to these stages that, that right. have been discovered. So it's a major, major breakthrough in our understanding. And of course, I maintain that any religion of tomorrow that's going to be a legitimate and authentic religion is going to have to take not only waking up, but growing up into account. But as for Trump, Trump, it's true that he has a deep core that's very narcissistic and very egocentric. Correct. But his essential ideas are ethnocentric. And so, of course, he was charged with being racist and being sexist and being misogynist and being xenophobic and et cetera. And essentially, that's right, he was. But the problem is, in America, according to at least uh, um, some recent research, upwards of around 60% of Americans are essentially at ethnocentric, not world-centric. America was founded on world-centric principles. That We hold these truths to be self-evident. All people are created equal. And so the Constitution eventually came to include all different races, all different sexes. It's a very world-centric um, proposition. But everybody's born at square one. And so we have people that are still egocentric and uh, unfortunately about 60% of the population doesn't get past ethnocentric. And that's one of the difficulties with democracy. James Madison called it the tyranny of the majority. And a majority voted, Trump spoke to that ethnocentric white male Slightly racist, slightly sexist, um, slightly undereducated, that vast, vast middle America uh -huh. that themselves were at an ethnocentric orientation and felt left out a more world-centric, which they felt were elites. And so they glommed onto Trump um, with an extraordinary passion. And no matter what Trump did that would be otherwise incredibly embarrassing, and he did something unbelievably embarrassing almost every day, but that didn't affect these people's passion for him right. because he, he was radiating this ethnocentric orientation. They loved him for it, and they put him into office. So Hitler was democratically elected. I mean, <laughs> we, yeah. you know, we're, not, we're not immune to this kind of stuff. No, we aren't, although... It, it seems like a step back in uh, the evolution of our society and species as a whole, at least in the United States. I mean, look, we're representing just a very small segment of world population. But when you look around the world, you do see such divisiveness through religion, wars, famine, all the things that are occurring. And that brings me to this question. Many argue that religion has been so destructive, the source of so much war, suffering, uh, famine, yes. death, that yep. we're better off without it altogether. Um, well, we're better you, off you, without. Yeah. What do you yeah, say? We're better that? off without. We're better off without ethnocentric religions. The the, the problem is that there's been a, a little bit of a slight regression worldwide, because the things that are working with global world-centric um, um, items, uh, including technology and uh, a global market, uh, they've not been working well for a typical average middle-class um, person. Um, technology is putting more and more people out of work, and as we know, of course, in, in the past two or three decades in this country, 
average income has gone up, but median income has gone down. The average person is losing money slowly. And technology is not helping, it's hurting. And globalization is not helping, it's hurting. But of course, globalization is still going to happen. I mean, we can't stop those forces. We need that globalization to be inhabited by truly world-centric and integral awareness and not, as it's too often now, taken over by egocentric and ethnocentric special interest groups. And that's a problem. And so that's one of the things we're going to have to deal with. And what religion has to do, in, in my opinion, is, and certainly the new atheists, um, Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and, and, and those people that are um, constantly attacking religion, notice they don't attack waking up. All they attack are the mythic, literal, ethnocentric, fundamentalist religions worldwide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I categorically agree with them. Now, the problem is everybody's born at square one. And so all people will go through a period where they have ethnocentric thinking. You can't avoid it. It's an inherent stage of human growth and development. But what you need is to have it, particularly if you're in a religion, you have to have that religion come from world-centric or integral stages of development. Mm -hmm. And there are indeed individuals in virtually all the world's religions who are at world-centric or integral stages. And all, many of them are writing books about it. So Shelby Spong and Marcus Borg, for example, um, flat out say, we don't believe any of the myths of Christianity. We don't believe Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Uh, we don't believe that he was bodily resurrected. We don't believe in Genesis. We don't believe in Noah's Ark. We don't believe in any of that. And they're purely world-centric. That's what religions have to become. And if they do, then they would actually act as a source of transformation. Because it's the only discipline that we have where grown men and women can actually inhabit virtually any of the stages of development and get away with it. Well, now you, you can't be a doctor... Right, And you have to teach from, from integral levels of, of medical understanding, or you simply won't, won't be accepted into the profession. And medical right. school doesn't start out by year one, they teach you how, you know, how to use leeches, and then year two, you do bloodletting. But that's what they do in, in theology school. They will teach you magic and mythic, egocentric and ethnocentric tenets of, of religion as if they were you know, absolutely true. And they're not. There are limited stages of development that in today's world are common in the seven or eight-year-old, but should not be occurring in a 20 or 30-year-old. Those should be world-centric and integral. If we actually had religions that were saying, okay, here's the interpretation of our religion from an egocentric stage, here's our interpretation from an ethnocentric stage, here's world-centric, and here's integral. And they made all of those available to all of their followers then their followers would understand that, okay, right now I happen to believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And if I continue to grow, I might expand that and end up seeing Jesus as simply being one of many divine world teachers, not the sole world teacher. God wouldn't leave humans without a witness. So, of course, there are other world teachers, and Jesus is one of them. He happens to speak to me best, so I, I, I believe in him. But I understand people following Buddha or following Muhammad or following Shankara and so on. But the, the religion would actually help them grow up, not just wake up. 
Because what we found is that growing up and waking up are completely independent. You can have a major waking up experience and still be at an ethnocentric stage of growing up. And unfortunately, it happens all the time. But you can also be at a very high stage of growing up, world-centric or integral, and never had a waking up experience at all. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. these two things have never been combined in a single growth process ever. So yeah. even something like Stealing Fire, which is a wonderful book about states of consciousness and waking up, has no understanding of growing up. So it's still doing the same broken approach to human growth and development. Well, and that's, it's you're time talking for about, us to get over that. You're talking about Stephen Kotler's book that just came out, mm-hmm. Stealing Fire? Yeah. No, I've had yeah. Stephen on the show probably five or six times, The Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire. Um, but his 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 approach um, obviously is is through um, the the flow genome project and hacking flow, hacking levels of consciousness. And I get where you're coming from there because they are taking a different approach to that. But as you've talked about this, Ken, you talk about these great traditional religions that that have, they need to revolve evolve, which is what you're right. saying. What are the signs that are happening? And what are some of the best examples you could give our listeners about this 60% of what you're saying uh, uh, are not worldview religions, right. that there's some evolution there, that there's some right. hope for us? What, what examples would you give me or give our listeners? Well, it's interesting because what's the whole point about these stages of growing up is that individuals are going through them, whether they realize it or not. And so, um, so we have virtually every follower of of a world religion today. Um, those followers of, of each of the world's religions, there are ones that are at egocentric stages, there are ones that are at ethnocentric stages, there are ones that are at world-centric stages, and there are some that are at, at integral stages. And so this is happening in any event. But the problem is that the religions themselves haven't officially recognized this. So even when the Catholic Church does something like stumble into a world-centric statement, if it actually understood those stages of growth and development, it would have a really clear understanding of what had just happened to its, its own teachings. They had notched up from ethnocentric to world-centric. And so that would be obviously a good thing. They would start to understand a conveyor belt, and they could, they could uh, obviously start to get behind that. So we start to see things like that happening. Here in uh, America, um, just an example because it happened to involve me just recently, but um, there were some uh, 20 or 30 of the nation's leading evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Now, traditionally, those tend to be very fundamentalist. Meeting and with you? Very, yeah, and they, so the, you know, they take the Bible literally and, and so on. No, I'm saying but those they, fundamentalists were meeting with you? Yes, that's right. Oh, that's pretty interesting. I wouldn't even thought that they would have gotten a stone's throw from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And I asked them why, though, and, and, and the general sort of whis- whispered uh, um, acknowledgement was, we're tired of the myths. Ah, what a, they're, great, you know, they just, they're so what a great embarrassing. 
Yeah. They're so embarrassing. They're, and so they said that so so coming upon my work gave them a, a way out. It showed right. them a way forward. Right. They could still embrace, you know, let this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. They could still have that kind of waking up experience, which many of them had had, but they didn't have to interpret it at that ethnocentric, mythic, literal stage of development that the fundamentalists were. And yeah. so they they were very excited about it. And some of them had actually, were actually calling it integral uh, Christianity. Um, and there's been over, um, I've seen now at least seven or eight books that are actually about integral Christianity using using this this integral model. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's starting what to happen. We, and what if we were to look at something like the Mormons versus Buddhism it, to compare right. and contrast? Okay, uh, there's a there's a lot of dogma in Mormonism. Still is. I've right. seen some evolution in it. I haven't seen that much. Of course, I don't follow it daily. But is right. it compare and contrast? Would that be a fair compare and contrast here for our listeners with relation to somebody who's got more of a worldview on Buddhism and more of an egocentric view, maybe Mormonism? Uh, so, so what's the question about Mormonism? Well, I mean, I'm trying to compare and contrast for the listeners to say, okay, if there's evolution somewhere, um, you would say Buddhism has this worldview, correct? Uh, not necessarily. Again, okay. it de- it depends on, in particular, it depends on 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 the teacher, um, because people will come into a particular religion like Buddhism um, at their own stage of of growing up, their own stage of development. I see. Okay. And then the, what they'll end up getting taught depends upon the stage of the teacher, mm-hmm. and so in many cases. Um, particularly if you look at the more um, sort of detailed six to eight stages of, of uh, development, and it gives you a little bit more granular understanding of the stages that people go through. But we have uh, um, Buddhism in America now comes from uh, uh, generally, if we're looking at, at, at all eight stages uh, of growth, let's say, there, there are major schools of Buddhism in this country coming from around three different stages of growth. Hmm. And they're all very, very different. And they teach very different things. Right. But they all call themselves Buddhism, of course. And some of them are indeed world-centric, and one of them is actually integral. Um, Which one is integral? Well, it's actually the one that's called integral Buddhism is based on my work. Ah, okay. So you've had an influence there. Is is that the one that's in Boulder or near you in Denver? Uh, yeah, it's spreading. Um, um, it's got people around the world now. Huh. Um, but it's it's an example of what I think will be a religion of tomorrow because, of course, they're including waking up, and they're also including growing up. So they understand the different stages that people go through in, in that understanding. Um, and then they also have something we call cleaning up, which is they work with shadow material. Uh, and that's also something you don't generally get in the great traditions is, is a real clear understanding of the psychodynamic unconscious or shadow material. And so doing shadow work is important because you, you, you don't generally get that uh, in, any of the great, uh, in any of the great religions. Now, so we include all of that in, in what we call uh, an integral approach to, to uh, um, spirituality. 
Yeah, now if you would, if you could tell our listeners, because a lot of them may not know about this integral approach, um, explain the integral approach that you're taking. I know you've talked a little bit around the fringes of it, but this is what you're really known for. This is your websites that are out there. Um, there's the integral life. Um, explain a little bit more, if you would, the, the concept behind it. You've been doing this for, I don't know, a zillion years at this point. But if you could let them take a little bit of a dive with you into this integral vision. Sure. Well, um, essentially, I mean, if you look at virtually all the world's great spiritual uh, uh, systems today, most of them are about uh, one to 2,000 years old. And so just even if we take the New Testament as an example or any of the Buddhist sutras or the um, Upanishads in, in, in the Hindu tradition, all of those were, were written um, generally during the great axial period around, around a little over 2,000 years ago. At that time, uh, we knew nothing about atoms or molecules or cells. We knew nothing about interstellar space, nothing about DNA or, or genomics. Um, the, as a matter of fact, the Earth was still considered flat and the sun went around it. Slavery was accepted on every, in every uh, um, culture on the planet and, and was quite common and totally acceptable to the religions at that time. Women were second-class citizens, if that. Um, it, 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 it's really kind of, kind of shocking. I mean, in that ignorance, the great traditions were written. So, so the question would be, what if those texts were written according to what we've learned in the last 2,000 years? What if we also included that? What would they, what would they look like? Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and obviously, the, the, you know, the, the question is, well, why wouldn't we include what we've learned? Right. Um, the answer is well, because many of them just don't. They they take their original form as being right. dogmatic and unchangeable. Right. So some of the things that um, are really central that we've learned, uh, indeed, would have to do with things like how the human mind grows and develops. Um, not too many uh, of the spiritual traditions, frankly, would be interested in things like atoms and molecules and cells. Those are very important discoveries, and they would take account of them. But they were all more interested in, well, what the New Testament called metamorphosis. In other words, that changing consciousness is what they were most interested in. Right. And so what they would really be interested in is, have we learned anything in the last 2,000 years about how consciousness transforms and changes? And the answer is, yes, we have. We know, in addition to waking up, that we have a dozen multiple intelligences, and they all grow up. And that's a major piece of information. I mean, James Fowler did an empirical bit of research where he actually went to people who held spiritual beliefs, spiritual uh, understanding. And he he, um, did standard developmental tests on them. And he found that all of them went through essentially six major stages of spiritual growth and development. And at each stage, they had a very, very different view of what spirit was, what realization was, what enlightenment was, and so on. Now, 
don't you think that, I mean, if you take something like Buddhism, one of the most psychological religions on the face of the planet, if they knew about those six stages of spiritual intelligence growth, don't you think they would include those? They would be all over that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, they looked at every single psychological component that had anything to do with spiritual realization. They would have jumped on this stuff like you can't believe. And not only would they have taught ways to wake up, they would have taught ways to grow up. And so that's, in a sense, what an integral approach does. It says, well, well let's take what the great traditions have done in their esoteric waking up components that are still profound and still have some some meaning to this day. And then let's add stuff that we've learned. Let's add growing up. Let's add stuff about shadow work and cleaning up. We now know a lot about the major dimensions of existence and that we can't just use an objective third person um, approach to truth, which is known as science. There's also first-person approaches and second-person approaches. And so epistemologically, we would include those kinds of methodologies. Um, Including all of those approaches, which have a demonstrable impact on human awareness and uh, our overall life as we live it, including all of those approaches for which we have an enormous amount of evidence for, but almost all of them are ignored. There's very, very few approaches today in philosophy, in psychology, in science, you name it. There are almost no approaches that include all of these different methodologies and include all of these different areas, even though we have evidence that they're real. So what if we just put them all on the table and took a truly holistic inclusive approach and then look at how we do things like self-transformation or self-improvement or personal growth and development. Wouldn't that be changed? And the answer is dramatically. Mm -hmm. That's what an integral approach is. It simply puts all of those things on the table, organizes them in a way that makes sense, and then makes that overall framework available to people and that could be used in any discipline you want. You can take an integral approach to law, to medicine, to art. As a matter of fact, in the Journal of Integral Theory and Practice, over 60 different human disciplines have been reinterpreted using this integral framework. So it's very, very applicable. It has a great um, um, success in working with any discipline that it's introduced to, and it works. So that's kind of a, a, a quick overview of, of an integral approach. Yeah, it is. And I, it, for my listeners, they can go to integrallife.com. You can sign up yep. there and you can get a free, uh, it's called the integral vision, which is an ebook that Ken's got. Um, you also can learn more about Ken at kenwilber.com. Uh, that's another website that he's got. He's also got integral radio, which is on 24 hour broadcast. And uh, for my listeners, you know, we've been speaking with Ken Wilbur and Ken's new book, which is out, which is called The Religion of Tomorrow. And this book really does examine what I'm going to call how the shift is occurring, 
how we've been talking about today, the consciousness evolution with inside of these religions and how we can approach this from an integral approach and actually have a much more inclusive uh, world, uh, less division, uh, less war, more peace. Um, you know, I think you bring that to the world, Ken, and that's why I've always followed you and really appreciated your perspective uh, on this. And I've been a big raving fan of yours for, for a long time. So I hope my listeners will go out and get the book. The book is called The Religion of Tomorrow, available on Amazon. And Ken, as you were speaking, and I was reflecting back on um, many of those interviews with Stephen Kotler, and especially the last one on Stealing Fire, I can actually see why there is a bit of a uh, concern that you would have about the approach um, that Stephen is taking on, on what he calls, you know, hacking flow and getting into that uh, state, new state of consciousness, right? Well, yes, and keep in mind, I totally support what's being done. Right. The point, again, is that we simply have to add other aspects to it that they're unaware of. Right, right. You're saying they're missing some big elements. They're only approaching it from one angle. It's not an integral approach. Oh, essentially, sure. Yeah. Well, but again, it's not to detract from my appreciation of what they are doing. That's sort right. of the whole point about integral is that we love all of these different approaches. Right. That's why we include them all. Yeah, and I think the key is is that they're reaching a segment of the population which will read that material and take it up and actually use it. Um, whereas there's a, as you know, there's a big segment of the population that may not ever come across and read, you know, your book called the religion of tomorrow or the integral vision or any of these kind of things. Absolutely. So you kind of you, you have to, because it's all about these beliefs that they're running around in with their heads about how this material can actually influence them for the better. And my personal opinion is, is that everything that you've ever written, as far as the things that I've read, um, have had a huge impact on my growth, my own personal growth. And right. I think that's what Ken is saying here, is not only is it awakening, I'd say that I was awake to this. The question is, is how did this material help me grow? How did it help right. me become more inclusive? And I think your right. courses do the same. I was going to say to my listeners, um, Ken has a lot of online courses. Uh, please check them out. Um, is, is that done on a monthly basis, Ken, or is it just something that uh, people join once and take a course? How, how does all that work? I see this oh, we've got a whole variety. There's, there's a, 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 a very broad range of different kinds of uh, plans that we have. A lot okay. of stuff free. A lot of stuff can be um, bought at a one-time purchase, and then some things you can sign up with on a monthly basis or even a yearly basis. Well, we'll certainly promote that at the blog. We'll put links to uh, the courses. We'll put links to both of Ken's websites. Ken, it's been an honor and pleasure having you on uh, Inside Personal Growth, spending a little bit of time with me talking about your new book, uh, The Religion of Tomorrow. We'll put a link to Amazon for all the listeners to get to that. Um, so any parting words for our listeners? Well, listen, thank you very much for having me on. It's been terrific. I'm a big fan of uh, what you're doing, and I hope that um, um, we've been of some help to people that are, are interested in these things.